Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the smartest solutions to our most misunderstood problems. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and in each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing today and figure out where it came from, what important things we're missing, and how we can create more opportunity tomorrow. Right now, you are listening to music. It was recorded at some earlier time by people you've never met. But of course, you never pause to appreciate that because it's so commonplace. And yet, consider, just for a moment, how absolutely mind-blowing this all would have been if you were alive at the beginning of recorded music. The phonograph was introduced in the late 1800s, and it was the first version of what we now call a record player. This changed something fundamental about the human experience. Consider it, for all of human history, up until the late 1800s, for all of human history, the only way that someone could hear music being performed is if another human being was standing in front of them playing an instrument. That was it. And then, out of nowhere... The human experience changed. A machine could capture sound and play it back whenever you wanted. And it would sound like this. Cornet solo, sing, smile, slumber, played by Bohemia Trill, Edison Records. That music is from somewhere between 1904 and 1908, back when music was recorded on cylinders, and each cylinder generally began with an announcement, as if it was the start of a show. This was new and captivating, and people loved it. But also, as phonographs entered the home and everyone could play music whenever they wanted, the worrying class of the early 1900s became very worried. Here is a report from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, October 1st, 1916. Does not the frequent use of the phonograph, especially in continual repetitions of a number, produce inattention in the hearer? The music is so easily obtainable by the listener who sits back and is fed with sweet sounds. And here's a critic named Alice Clark Cook in a publication called Musical America from around the same time. Mental muscles become flabby through a constant flow of recorded popular music. But critics weren't the only ones complaining. You know who also really hated this new technology? Who just absolutely despised the idea of being able to record music and play it back on a machine? Well, it was musicians. The world's most famous musicians started to rebel. They worried for their jobs. They worried about being replaced. And they were worried that this wasn't just the end of musicians. It was the end of music and maybe the end of humanity. For example, one of the most famous musicians of the time argued that music machines would tear us apart. How's that? Well, consider dance parties. So dance parties used to have live bands, and live bands needed to take a break. And the resultant interruption afforded the opportunity for general sociability and rest among the entire company. But, as this very famous musician explained... 
machines don't actually need to take a rest. A tireless mechanism can keep everlastingly at it. And much of what made a dance a wholesome recreation is eliminated. No breaks, no socialization, no wholesome recreation. No happy couples meeting on the dance floor and then getting to know each other during a break in the music. The social fabric of our lives unraveling. Now, who made this crazy argument? I will tell you more about him later, along with many more of his colorful arguments. But for now, consider this. When we look back at the fury over recorded music, we can easily dismiss it as a silly moral crisis. But I think it's more than that. It is an important lesson about how to manage change today, both as individuals and as a collective society. Because let's be honest, even though we might laugh at people's reactions to recorded music, we make mistakes exactly like this. We see change coming for us, and we're so busy trying to stop it that we miss the biggest opportunities ahead. In my book, Build for Tomorrow, which, yes, has the same name as this podcast, I write about why change is so difficult for people and how to overcome that. And here's what I found. Change is hard because we equate change with loss. We see something new come along and immediately think about how it will impact or replace something we already have. And that feels like loss. And then, because we want to know what will happen next, we start extrapolating the loss. We say, if I lose this, then I'll lose that. And if I lose that, then I'll lose that other thing. And soon it starts to feel like we've lost everything. But what if we did something else instead? What if we focused on gain? Yes, gain is a lot harder to see than loss because gain isn't often immediately obvious. Gain is something we must anticipate. And this is why I want to tell you the story of recorded music. I actually first aired a version of this episode in 2017, but I have completely updated and reworked it because it could not be more relevant to all the personal changes and big societal changes that we are experiencing today. This is a story about our complicated relationship with loss and gain and about what it takes to really find that gain. It's not easy, but it's there. It's always there. So how do we find it? All coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So like I said, the story of recorded music is a story of loss and gain. And before we can appreciate the gain, we must understand the loss, which means we must start at the beginning before anything was lost at all. So our story begins with Thomas Edison, who was a busy guy. Thomas Edison in his lab introduced the phonograph in 1877. And it really didn't go anywhere for a while because he actually set it aside to work on the light bulb. That is Mark Katz, a professor of music and of humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the author of a book about how technology changed music called Capturing Sound. It wasn't until the 1890s that it, that it really became of much interest or, or known well beyond just being a kind of novelty. 
And that's because at first, the phonograph was so new and revolutionary that people barely understood it. They thought it was a trick, like maybe a band was playing behind a wall somewhere. A bishop once met Thomas Edison and even demanded a test to prove that the machine works. So Edison set the phonograph up to record the bishop's voice. And here's from an article from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in 1931, looking back on that moment. The bishop recited, haphazard a long list of obscure biblical names. When the phonograph recited them right back to him, he was convinced because he could not conceive that any hidden ventriloquist could remember them. But of course, just because something is impressive, that doesn't mean it's useful. And at first, the phonograph was not useful at all. The recording quality was low, and there was no means of mass-producing records, but over time, it evolved. The gramophone used a flat record, which people liked a lot more than the original cylinders that music was recorded on. And as the technology got better, it attracted better musicians. A big breakthrough moment came when the Italian opera singer Enrico Caruso began recording in 1902. In 1906, the Victor Talking Machine Company introduced its own innovation called the Victrola, which was basically a big cabinet with a record player inside. Because you know how we always picture those old machines with a giant horn? People didn't actually like that horn. It was easy to knock over and kids kept putting stuff in it. So the Victrola was a game changer. But even as people bought these new machines and marveled at their abilities... There was a lot of anxiety about recorded sound. Recorded music forced people to reconsider the very experience of music. I mean, music had always been something people saw live, which meant it was almost always experienced in a group. But now someone could listen to music alone. And that was weird. For example, here's a question that would have made sense only back then. How do you listen to music by yourself? Like in the past, you know, you would have watched the musicians perform. Your eyes would have been on them. But if you're in the comfort of your own home, what do you do with your body and mind while the music is playing? To answer this question, the Edison Company created the Edison Realism Test. It was a six-step method of listening to a record, which salespeople would use to walk potential customers through. In short, the process went like this. Okay, to start, pick the kind of music you want. Then sit with your back towards the machine, which isn't going to be playing anything yet. Then spend two minutes looking through a scrapbook where you'll read some words about music and imagine some music. Then say the words, I am ready. As you begin to listen to the music, well, here are the instructions word for word from the actual test. About 45 seconds after the music begins, close your eyes slowly and keep them closed for a minute or more. Then open your eyes for 15 seconds, but do not gaze at your surroundings. After this, close your eyes again and keep them closed until the end of the selection. You should get the same emotional reaction experienced when you last hear the same kind of voice or instrument. If you don't feel those emotions, the test says, then you should do the whole thing over again. So that's how to listen to music alone. Now, here's another question that would have only made sense back then. What do you do if you find someone else listening to music alone? 
The writer Orlo Williams wondered that in 1923 and wrote, You would think it odd, would you not? You would endeavor to dissemble your surprise. You would look twice to see whether some person were not hidden in some corner of the room. And if you found no such one, would painfully blush, as if you had discovered your friend sniffing cocaine, emptying a bottle of whiskey, or plating straws in his hair. Awkward! So that's what the average music consumer grappled with. But the average musician had a larger set of concerns. They saw themselves being replaced. The record player was an existential threat to their existence, and they wanted it stopped. The leader of the resistance was a guy named John Philip Sousa. You may not know his name, but you definitely know his music. He wrote the military marches that we still know today, like this one. really did make as bold an argument as you can make about disliking recordings. And that came from the fact that he deeply understood what live music could be. This is Matthew Thibodeau, who has studied Sousa's opposition to recorded music and is an associate professor of cultural and creative arts at the Education University of Hong Kong. In fact, if you went back and you looked at a Sousa concert, it was an experience that was deeply attuned to things that only live music could do. For example, when he put on a concert, the guy would only list four pieces on his program, but then he'd go on to perform about 12 based on what he felt that particular audience was into. He'd do two or three encores, and he demanded the audience's full attention. He would stop mid-song if he thought people had drifted off. Over 40 years, Sousa gave more than 15,000 concerts, which comes out to more than one a day. So when recorded music technology came out, you can imagine how Sousa felt about it. In 1906, he wrote an essay called The Menace of Mechanical Music in a literary journal called Appleton's Magazine, which was reprinted in hundreds of newspapers and magazines across the country. Remember earlier, I said that people often equate change with loss, and then we extrapolate the loss, thinking that because we've lost one thing, we'll lose another and then another until everything feels lost? Well... If you want to see what that looks like, then this Sousa document has it all. It's a catalog of sad, alarming predictions about how recorded music would drain our lives of meaning and joy, and it would stop people from meeting each other at dances because, yes, we have reached the point where I reveal the musician that you heard at the very beginning of the show saying that because a machine doesn't stop playing music, then nobody will ever stop dancing. John Philip Sousa, which makes this a perfect representation of extrapolating loss. And therefore, his essay is also a perfect way for us to explore the difference between loss and gain. So here's what I want to do with this essay. I'm going to pick three predictions from John Philip Sousa, and then we're going to see how they turned out. And after that, we can try to understand what was really going on here and why someone like Sousa is driven to such extreme fears. All right, here is fear number one, quoting directly from Sousa's article. The hope of developing the local music personality is eliminated. Here was Sousa's argument. In the past, he said, a child might hear music and then want to learn how to perform it themselves. So they would start copying other people's performance styles. But eventually they would develop their own style, which is true, of course. That is how many people learn any creative art. But Sousa worried that with recorded music available... 
that evolution would stop. Maybe instead of being inspired to learn an instrument, people would be inspired to buy a phonograph and never learn to play. Or they would learn an instrument by copying what they heard on a recording and never develop their own style. Therefore, the local music personality is eliminated. So how did that turn out? Oh, well, that's that's a strange thought to me. This is Viola Smith, though here's someone who can introduce her better. I'd like you to meet our very charming little drummer, Viola Smith. That's Viola performing in the 1930s with the group Frances Carroll and her Coquettes. Viola is considered the first female star of jazz drumming, and her performing days overlapped with John Philip Sousa, which means she's very well equipped to say how recorded music technology impacted her. And when I spoke with her at the age of 104, her answer was, eh, not that much. We listed the records, and then we incorporated it into our style. Each musician has his own style of playing. And when you listen to records... You uh, you tend to pick up ideas, extra ideas, but you cannot change your whole whole way of playing just because you heard a, heard another style of playing on the record. Which is what any musician will tell you today. Records did not destroy the development of the local music personality, as John Philip Sousa predicted. If anything, records accelerated this development by giving aspiring musicians more influences to choose from, to mix and match from, to absorb into their own personal development. Now, let's go on to John Philip Sousa fear number two, which was... It will simply be a question of time when the amateur disappears entirely, and with him, a host of vocal and instrumental teachers who will be without field or calling. Sousa's logic went like this. In the past, people needed to practice in order to create great music. But practicing is hard, and why would anyone bother to do that when the machine can just play a record whenever they'd like? Therefore, when record players are available, the amateur musician will disappear, and so will all their teachers. But of course... That's really not why people make music. It's not a chore that, if given an alternative, you would take it. Mark Katz actually researched this claim, and he found the exact opposite of what Sousa predicted. During the early years of recorded music, the number of music teachers and the number of amateur musicians both went up. Because, of course, people were never inspired by live music. They were inspired by music. And now that they heard recordings of music, well, they just heard more music to be inspired by, too. And they were probably inspired to learn an instrument so that they, too, could be recorded. Now, finally, here is my absolute favorite argument of Sousa's. It is Sousa fear number three. Will they not sing? If they sing at all in imitation and finally become simply human phonographs without soul or expression. Sousa painted a dark picture. He wrote that when recorded music enters the home, all forms of live music will cease. Because, of course, why would anyone perform live when a machine can do it for them? And then, because there's no longer going to be live music in the home, mothers would no longer sing to their children. Because, again, why would they do that when a machine can do it for them? And because children imitate their mothers, the children will now imitate the machines instead. And, as he said, they will become simply human phonographs. 
we will raise a generation of machine babies. To which I can only offer this. One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over. That is my son who was complaining about having to walk down a sidewalk and who then really did not want to hear me singing about walking. He'd rather listen to Kids Bop on Spotify. So I guess score one for Sousa, but nah, not really, because when I sing my kids lullabies at night, they are really into it. And they are definitely not machine babies. Because although John Philip Sousa believed we live in a world of either or, we actually get to live in a world of and, a world of both, a world of more options, where being able to do a new thing does not, by its very nature, eliminate the value of an old thing. Gain, not loss. But look, I'm not here just to dump on Sousa. His entire world was being shaken and he was afraid. That's why I see this as an important cautionary tale, because we all right now do this exact thing in our heads whenever we're faced with a big change. For example, if one thing changes at our job, we feel like everything will change and then we fear that we'll become useless and unable to keep up and we'll be fired and we'll never have another job again. This may be our natural way of thinking, but it is not the only way of thinking. We can push ourselves to find gain too and then to extrapolate that gain instead of extrapolating loss. That's why whenever we're faced with a big change, I think we should ask ourselves three questions. Number one, what are we doing differently because of this new thing? Number two, What new skill or habit are we learning as a result? And number three, how could that be put to good use? Think of how Sousa might have answered those. I mean, number one, what are we doing different because of this new thing? Well, we're now recording music and people are now listening to music in the privacy of their home. Number two, what new skill or habit are we learning as a result? Well, consumers are learning that they have more control over the music they listen to. They can listen to whoever they want, whenever they want. And now, number three, how could that be put to good use? Well, holy cow, if I'm a musician, I can reach so many more people than I ever could have before. I once could only reach people I could physically travel to, but now I can record something today and people around the world can listen to it tomorrow. That's amazing. When you look at it like that, you realize that John Philip Sousa was actually protecting a system that limited his own economic opportunity. Recorded music did not shrink his ability to work. It actually exponentially expanded it. And think of all the new music jobs it created, too. Studio musicians, engineers, promoters, DJs. There are more ways to make money on music now than ever before. But I want to acknowledge something. Change is not an easy process. It is rarely as straightforward as simply asking yourself three questions, even if they're useful questions, and then coming away with some new life philosophy. Loss can be real and difficult to manage. Some changes will come easier than others. And to be fair, recorded music technology did threaten a lot of jobs. Up until the late 1920s, for example, movies were always accompanied by a live band, but then recorded music could sync up with the film and an estimated third of musicians were out of work. In 1928, the head of the American Federation of Musicians framed the change as an existential threat to everyone, writing that musical machines constitute a serious menace to cultural growth. So, what does a messy transition look like? And how can we make it through not just the panic of change, but the real, genuine challenges of it? Again, the history of recorded music has a lot to tell us. So we will dig into that coming up after the break. All right, we're back. 
So we've covered some of the sillier ways that people reacted to recorded music, but let's now talk about the tangible impact, too. By the late 1920s, an estimated third of working musicians were out of work as their jobs in movie theaters and other places were replaced by machines, and musicians wondered if they would be replaced entirely. So in turn, they tried to attack the machines. First, musicians went on the offensive. In the 1930s, they transformed an economic issue into a moral one and claimed that the very nature of music and humanity were at stake. Fun fact, this is actually where the phrase live music comes from. Here again is Matthew Thibodeau. The whole term live music was actually introduced by the Musicians Union as a rhetorical attempt to oppose live versus dead. They wanted consumers to think of recordings as dead and them as alive, and who would choose death over life? The union also ran an enormous anti-recorded music ad campaign, much of which came in the form of cartoons printed in newspapers. In one of them, for example, there's this robot with a guitar, and it's, uh, it's serenading a woman who looks pained by the experience. There's a headline that says, The Robot Sings of Love, and then the text goes on to say, But the robot has no soul, and having no soul, it cannot love. Small wonder the lady spurns its suit. Music is an emotional art. By means of it, feeling may be translated into all tongues. The robot, having no capacity for feeling, cannot produce music in a true sense. Over time, the nature of the fight evolved. Musicians started to record their music, but were demanding increased royalties from record labels. In the 1940s, a guy named James Petrillo took over the Musicians' Union and led two strikes. From 1942 to 1944, and again in 1948, no union musician could go into a studio and record. This earned some short-term victories, including a few more dollars for musicians, but it also had many unintended consequences. Because here's the thing. Yes, like I said, transitions can be hard, but they also create new opportunities for others. The only big question is, who can recognize those new opportunities and who is willing to move towards them? You can get a little taste of how this played out in a ditty called Say Something Sweet to Your Sweetheart by Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae. It came out in 1948 during that second musician strike. Tell her how much you care. At no time during this number do you hear a musical instrument. Say something. You catch that? <laughs> because while the strike forbid union musicians from recording, it did not cover singers or musicians who played odd instruments or who weren't under union contract. So what happened? Well, the world didn't sit silently waiting for one set of musicians to get back into the studio. Music got experimental. Small record labels opened and radio stations imported new albums from other countries. And also, singers started to take center stage. Before the 1940s, singers were often an afterthought and the big band and its band leader were the stars of any show. But by the time the strikes were over, singers became the stars and pop music was on its way to replacing big bands. I miss it. I, I, I'm really a fan of the big bands, which sounds funny coming from an ex-Top 40 jock, but I miss them. That is Jim Ramsberg. He took his first job in radio in 1954 as all these changes were playing out. I asked him if, looking back, he thought we lost anything in the change. Well, who are we to say? Quite frankly, 
because I was one of the guys that helped kill it. We, uh, our studios in Minneapolis are right down the street from WCCO, which was an old line CBS operation and just a, one of America's finest radio stations. And we were out to kill it. And every time we saw a, a funeral procession go down the street, we said, there goes another CCO listener. And that's the way it was in those days. It was a dying, dying art, the big bands. And it, it, it really is unfortunate. But that was just the trend of pop culture in those days, and it continues today. Okay, so now let's step back and look at the fullness of this story. For most of human history, music could only be performed live. Therefore, the music business evolved as a live business. But then a machine came along and it could play music too. And the musicians of the turn of the century saw that as loss. They imagined being replaced by the machines. And to be fair, in some circumstances, they were replaced by machines. So the musicians dug in, anticipating that their slice of the pie would only get smaller and that they needed to defend it at all costs. Economists actually have a term for what the musicians were thinking, at least as it relates to big economic questions. It's something I stumbled upon a few years ago when listening to the podcast Planet Money, when they discussed something called the lump of labor fallacy. The lump of labor fallacy is the notion that there's a kind of a a finite amount of work to do, and so that if uh, more work is done by machines or potentially by immigrants or uh, by workers overseas, then we will run out of work uh, at home. This is David Otter, a professor of economics at MIT, speaking to Planet Money's Jacob Goldstein. And Otter said, look, here's why this is a fallacy. Consider that 100 years ago, Americans used to spend like 70% of every dollar on the absolute basics of life, food, clothing, housing. But then, thanks to machines or foreign labor or immigrants, all of our things became cheaper. As a result, yes, some jobs were lost, but consumers suddenly had a lot more money to spend because now, thanks to all these cheap goods, only like 40% of every dollar was going to the basics of life. So what did people do with the rest of that money? Well, they didn't just put it in a savings account. They started to spend it on restaurants and entertainment and adventures, therefore fueling new jobs in new industries. Here's Jacob Goldstein from that Planet Money episode. So like the lump of labor fallacy is telling us here that there is not some fixed amount, some lump of labor to be done in the world, right? It's like we are just going to keep coming up with new jobs that we could not have imagined would exist. Now, that's not to say everything is easy and hunky-dory. It's not. On Planet Money, for example, they also spoke about how this transition can be difficult and not everyone wins. So there's no evidence to think that we're running out of jobs, but that doesn't mean that everybody's getting a better job. Which is to say, loss is real. So what do you do? Well, if you're looking at large economic systems like an economist, then you start to talk about job training programs and other means of fostering new markets and transitioning older workforces. But if you're just an individual person trying to navigate a change yourself, well, then you have a choice. You can spend your energy focused on protecting what you've lost. Or you can focus it on identifying the gain that will be there, but that might not be easy to see. And that might require putting yourself into uncomfortable positions. But that truly is the only pathway forward, which is how we get to this. This is John Philip Sousa, and I'm very glad to be here with my band representing my own country, America. 
I hope you will enjoy hearing me again as much as I always enjoy playing for you. That is a recording of John Philip Sousa's orchestra. There he is, the man who told us that recorded music would destroy babies, the man who refused to ever perform near a microphone. In September of 1929, Sousa gave all that up and tentatively embraced the radio. At first, he performed live on the radio, but later he even did recordings. Before this, Sousa always stressed the importance of a live audience. To him, that was a core part of what made music, well, music. But then he went into this radio studio, which contained just a a few people, his wife, three children, manager, secretary, a few guests. He wrote about the experience later in the New York Times, describing having a mix of curiosity and anxiety, and then afterwards discovering to his great delight that he still got the audience reaction that he craved. It just happened in a different way. Before the concert was over, I received several telegrams from almost every state in the Union. And they were uniformly superlative in utterance and complimentary in character. That is what he wrote. And then he wished that somebody would invent yet another piece of technology. This time, it would allow a performer to hear the applause from people far and wide. So why did Sousa do it? Why did he drop the objections and start recording? Well, here's the thing. He realized he could make a lot of money off of recordings. That's Mark Katz again, because here's the thing. Before recorded music, there were really two big ways that a composer like Sousa made money. He could perform, yes, but he could also sell the sheet music of his compositions. Sousa did both, and he worried that record players would destroy both those markets. But then he realized, wait a second, I can make a lot more money off these records than I could ever do by selling sheet music. Sousa ultimately discovered that gain follows loss. It is simply the thing that happens. Change sparks a panic, and then we adapt, and then we find a new normal, and then we get to something so new and valuable that we say, I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. That's the cycle. Easier for some, harder for others. It is not always clean or clear, and it can create hardship along the way, and I am not here to dismiss the very real struggles of anyone who's going through it, but instead, I'm just here to ask this question. How much time and energy do you want to devote to protecting the past before figuring out the future? That, to me, is the real story of recorded music. Nobody won in this story by looking backwards. But some of them, like John Philip Sousa, eventually thrived by doing what we all must do. They learned to change their tune. And that's our episode. But hey, remember that clip I played of Viola Smith, the 104-year-old drummer? There's a really funny backstory to it, which she shared with me. So I'll tell you that in a minute. But first, if you love Build for Tomorrow, the podcast, then you will totally love Build for Tomorrow, the book. I wrote it for anyone facing a big change in their work or lives. And it is full of stories and lessons and practical exercises, including some of the stuff that you heard today to help you find your next big thing. And yes, podcast lovers, it is available in audio format too. Find Build for Tomorrow, the book or the audiobook or the ebook available wherever you find books or at jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. And if you want even more advice and encouragement on how to adapt fast, sign up for my newsletter. Find it by going to jasonpfeiffer.com slash newsletter. You can also get in touch with me directly at my website, Jason Pfeiffer, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Hey Pfeiffer. 
And as I said before, this episode is adapted from an earlier episode that I did in 2017. That one had help from Jennifer Ritter, and this updated version had research and production help from Emily Holmes and Adam Sokolich. The John Philip Sousa quotes you heard were read originally in 2017 by Tim Hattrick. He's now a morning host at KNIX Country 102.5 in Phoenix. And all other archival materials were read more recently by Gia Mora. You can learn more about her at giamora.com. Sound editing by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. Since the first version of this episode aired, unfortunately, Viola Smith passed away in 2020 and Jim Ramsberg passed away in 2021. This show is supported in part by the Stand Together Trust. Stand Together Trust believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that's you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit StandTogetherTrust.org. All right. Now, as promised, a closing story from Viola. When I introduced her before, I played this little clip. And I said this was a clip from the band Francis Carroll and Her Coquettes, which I guess made Viola one of the coquettes. But Viola says the backstory here is kind of crazy. Mm. It was my orchestra. My sisters and my orchestra. At first, it was actually an orchestra with Viola's whole family. But then everyone dropped out except her sister, who played saxophone. So Viola and her sister were performing with this orchestra. And then Warner Brothers wanted to do a recording with them. And it was going to be billed as their orchestra, as the sisters would be the stars. But the booker at Warner Brothers was dating a band leader named Frances Carroll. And then Frances Carroll got assigned to lead Viola's orchestra. And uh, she went out with him. And, um, and before all of a sudden we see ourselves as, as Warner Brothers presents Frances Carroll and her coquettes. In other words, this girl who went with a, with a booker became her orchestra, not, not the Smith Sisters Orchestra or the, or the coquettes. We call ourselves the coquettes. How's that for an abrupt change? But hey, loss and gain. Viola wasn't too bothered. She was ready to leave the orchestra anyway and move to New York City, which is what she did and became known as much more than just one of Frances Carroll's coquettes. Thanks for listening to me on this, a recording that contains recorded music, scandalous as that might have once been. My name is Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow.